Podcasting from the Space Coast in Florida, this is the Dadpreneur Podcast, where we'll feature entrepreneurs, share digital marketing strategies to help grow your business, and discuss the dynamics of family and business. Now your host, Alex Oliveira. Welcome to the Dadpreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Oliveira. And today I have the pleasure of speaking to Asim. He is with Copycat, one of the co-founders of Copycat. But um, I'm going to go ahead and let Asim introduce himself, tell us a little bit about himself. He's been featured in Forbes 30 Under 30. And he's, you know, as a young entrepreneur, he's doing really big things in the uh, tech space. So without further ado, welcome, Asim. Hey, Alex. Great to be here. Uh, Thanks for inviting me onto the podcast. Uh, Let me start off by telling you all a little bit about myself. Um, I'm Asim Sani. And what I work on is called Copycat right now. Uh, But you'll probably find in Forbes 30 under 30 that I'm listed under the heading of my previous startup called Orai. Um, And a little bit about that. Orai um, is and was, I guess, in the middle of somewhere a public speaking app that uses AI to help you become a better public speaker. Well, so what Copycat is, is something that we learned, uh, so is something that has come out of a problem uh, that we faced during a ride. And we can jump into that much later. Awesome. No, that's a great introduction. I was really interested about Orai. You know, I think most people at some point have had the fear of public speaking. I know I did early on and everyone uses different strategies, you know, from the time they're in college to, you know, here, of course, as you know, in the U S a lot of people go and do Toastmasters or they'll do some masterclass. And, you know, at the end of the day, I find still to this day that even if you have the confidence and even if you've done it a thousand times, there are certain things that just happen in your own mind and body that that you can't always control in a, in, in a particular situation right so you can go speak i've spoken in front of you know five six hundred people no problem had a great and then i i can go into a room with 20 30 people and if i'm not feeling the vibe it's not mindset because i can i can you know walk on hot coals and not feel it i can do mind over matter but it's sometimes if you're not really feeling it, it's a little bit harder to act, right? So of course, acting skills and other things come into play. But talk to me about that for you with Ori, you know, you and your co-founder, you guys, were you experiencing that sort of uh, problem about public speaking, you know? Yeah, so let me get into a bit of that. Uh, My co-founders and I came to the United States as undergrads. And while uh, it's a requirement for us to know English, and we are fluent as far as anything goes, I mean, I've been learning English since I was throughout grade school, it's India, you know, uh, you have to know the language really. Uh, But we weren't really able to communicate. There's a distinct and large barrier between being fluent in a language on a technical level and being able to really communicate, especially in the United States where, you know, British English doesn't really uh, play out as well. And so what ended up happening, at least in my uh, experience, was that I used to go and talk to people, try to make friends or even just, uh, you know, present in the classroom and people were like, wait, what do you say right there? Oh, can you repeat that for me? Or even just 
uh, when I asked a friend, like, oh, man, dude, I did not get the flow of what you were saying. When it got worse, really, was <laughs> when I started going to job interviews. And right. the interviewer was like, uh-huh. And I, I can see that they did not get what I said to them or even understood the flow of my chain, chain of thoughts. Or, you know, I was just coming across as too anxious in some cases. And that's really where I where public speaking for me comes from. I don't think of it as just being on the stage. I think of it as talking to anybody in a space which is not, uh, not private, really. And so what we decided to do, my co-founders and I, who also faced these same similar problems, Danish and Bartosz, both went through like identical journeys, really. We decided like, okay, let's figure this out. Uh, we started reading books. Uh, we started trying some online courses. We tried Toastmasters, which was great, honestly. Uh, and then we finally ended up having a friend who was a speech coach who gave us amazing tips and was able to set us on the right path to becoming better public speakers. Of course, it takes practice and practice does make perfect. But then what we realized after a while was like, oh, wow, okay, uh, this is really inaccessible to a lot of people. Because a speech coach can charge up to $3,000 for a two-hour or one-hour session for about 20 people or something like that. And they rarely do one-on-ones unless you've got a fortune to spend. And I was, I was really disheartened by that, that, you know, had I been back home in India or had I, any of my friends been back home in India, uh, they wouldn't be able to get access to this. Heck, most of my colleagues in college won't be able to get access to something like this. So one night we were at a hackathon over at UPenn, which is right next door to Drexel where we were undergrads. And we were like, hmm, what can we do uh, that'll get us on stage? Wait, let's make something that'll help us be good on stage right there. <laughs> so we decided to build this VR application, which uh, my uh, CTO, Paratosh, was really like working on those things in his co-op uh, employing uh, you know, employee experience kind of thing. And it, we built this application, which kind of measured how fast we were speaking. We hacked it together using some um, IBM APIs and you got it on there and they were on stage. It was amazing. At this point of time, uh, I was not even part of the team really. And so it was a surprise to me that this worked out, but it did. And over time, Parthish and Danish kind of kept experimenting with the idea. Uh, and I was in the background really. And it kind of started taking traction. And that's kind of how this really formed. Or I formed out of this need we had. And it kind of precipitated from being a VR thing because nobody use, really uses VR, not even anymore, uh, mm -hmm. to a mobile application, which I, anybody could pick up and use, which gives you feedback on your speech. And we went way beyond just telling you how fast you're speaking, to going to your arms and us, to whether you're sounding clear enough, whether you're, whether you're speaking too for too long or too short. It probably say I've been speaking for too long right about now. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you in your head, you were breaking it down scientifically with the metrics. And, and I think that's great because in business, whether it's like you said, speaking on stage or a phone call, face-to-face -face meeting or at a conference, it's all networking and it's all relationships, you know? And I think that, um, you know, if you know your material, you know, in mo most cases, business people, if they know their product and service, they really understand it. It's not as hard 
to go out there and build relationships. And, I, and I, even with introverts, I, you know, people make such a big deal about introverts and the ones who are really high social. I know many introverts who do just fine in, at a conference, sitting down 20, 30 meeting, meetings over the course of a few days, telling their story, selling their product, and then moving on, right? They just don't want to talk for three, four hours with the same person. That's not their thing, which I think is just human behavior. And that's normal, you know, but um, yeah, I, I think you're right on with some of those things that you talked about really getting down to how long do you speak for removing the ums and ahs. And ultimately what you said earlier is that practice makes perfect, right? If someone tells me they're having, they're having trouble building relationships or talking or they'll tell me, I really don't like sales. Because I have people in the marketing department who say, well, I don't really like sales. I say, well, is it because you don't like to talk to people? Well, yeah, I don't really feel comfortable. You know, what, what am I going to talk about? Small talk, you know, the weather, sports. And yeah, that's sort of the idea is that you build rapport, right? Now, if you are in sales and you are, you know, let's say cold calling a company, that requires a completely different set of skills, right? That you have to have a compelling message and you have to be relentless. That's very, very different than just every day being in business. But I think it's good uh, advice and also a resource that I'm definitely going to put in the show notes for our, our listeners because we have many first stage entrepreneurs or even entrepreneurs that are in high school and college who know that they, they at some point are going to want to build their own company and there's so much value in being able to, to be a better communicator. Wouldn't you agree? I would for sure. And the great thing is public speaking and sales are a learnable, teachable skill. I've met so many salespeople who are fundamentally introverts. The fact is, yeah. it's not about being an extrovert. Sometimes that can even get in the way because you Agreed. just want to talk to people so much. <laughs> Sometimes you got to keep quiet, you, you know, sometimes you just got to be there and be there absorbing the strategic, you know, uh, vibe of people. That's right. And, and you're all right. I, I definitely know for myself, I've always been a talker, a very outgoing and early on in sales. I had sales managers and mentors. I said, just be quiet. Ask the, the some open-ended questions, some closed-ended questions. It's like a chess game. Take them here, take them there. Be strategic, but just be quiet. You talk so much. So I, I can definitely attest to that. Sometimes listening is better than just talking in sales. Um, so let's let's uh, switch gears here to the new uh, startup that you are in, Copycat, because I think being a young entrepreneur like yourself and already being involved in a second startup, it must be amazing. What, what are some of the things that you learned from the first startup that you are applying in the second round here? So let me get briefly into what Copycat is right there. Um, during our process of building out the application, we really needed to be fast while building out every single thing. We had week over week or week of sprints. We were releasing every Friday like clockwork. And one of the biggest places we found that time was getting slowed down was when my designer would give their designs to my developers to implement uh, the user interface. Not the logic, not the, not the crazy cool AI part, not, none of that, but just simply copying what color this button is, what shape, which, which image to put in, 
all of those things just took nearly a day and a half to get pixel perfect. You know, like, hold up. That's literally menial labor at the end of the day. And a day and a half in my sprint goes into that. So my CTO was like, yeah, can we do something about this? About October uh, last year. He was like, can we do something, do something about this? Because, you know, what sadly happened with Ori was it was growing. It still is growing. But it wasn't growing at an exponential rate that was satisfactory for uh, the two of us as well as our investors. So we're like, we got to go put pause on this thing. COVID has hit everything hard. Our enterprise sales got hit. Our consumer sales actually didn't go anywhere, anywhere great either. So we're like, COVID's not helping us. COVID's not, uh, not really you know, hurting us either. So we got to figure out different directions. So it was like, okay, let's figure this out. And he's sat down, we sat down, we tried, I was like, are people doing this already? People were doing this. People were taking designs, letting people click on them and turn them di directly into code, uh, UI code. But that code wasn't really readable or usable by anybody who's a coder. Maybe you could use it for a no-code website, uh, like, you know, Wix or something like that. But but you probably couldn't use it if you're trying to build a full-blown full web app like Airbnb. Like, you know, you want to implement a new feature on Airbnb, you can't use that. Mm -hmm. So we were like, okay, let's, let's get together, use our AI expertise and start building out something that will help people implement mobile application UIs as well as web application UIs uh, faster. And that's what we're working on right now. Uh, we've got a very beta version out there we're signing up people people right now the technology technology works and that's the gist of uh, copycat we help your developers become significantly faster and save up to 30 percent of your sprint time every week that's important that that time is valuable expensive and can sometimes be the difference between you being the first to market with with the product right and um, another question that I have for you really in this kind of gets at uh, copycat and what you guys are doing there is a lot of the more seasoned sort of senior level uh, entrepreneurs that I meet, you know, when they think about technology, if they don't have a background in it, it, it seems counterintuitive that you would build a company first, build the, you know, the, the database and all the features functions and then try to monetize it. Right. They can't understand how it, you know, like the, the comparison between what business used to be like then and what it's like today with technology, where sometimes you spend two, three, four, five years building something before you make a single dime. It's hard for them to understand why you would do something like that. And I'm not saying uh, uh, or suggesting that that uh, copycat is or isn't making um, um, sales at this point, but it's my experience that usually in your industry, you're building out the application and there is a much bigger goal, right? That to, to, to reach. So can you talk about that? And, you know, you grew up on technology, right? Being a millennial. So for you, it's not foreign to build something first, then monetize it. But does it sometimes give you some some sort of reservations as to, hey, if if I build a product that I can sell right off the shelf tomorrow, it's it's much it might be much easier than building this empire and not only monetizing until we 
have it passed beta and tested? So I've learned um, this lesson, if I might call it the hard way. And I, I've, I've I had bought into this whole attitude of we will build it and we'll make it great. And then we'll figure out the monetization and everything uh, too hard. Uh, and initially a lot of entrepreneurs in my generation buy into this because it's pretty much the norm for a lot of the big companies out there. Facebook didn't figure out their ad strategy for a very long time, but they were growing. They had people, they had eyeballs that people were like, great, let's do this. But you can't, not everybody can be a social network. And I'm a firm believer of if you can make money day one and you have the belief that this money is going to keep growing at a rate you're happy with till, you know, the first year, the second year, the fifth year, then make money day one. But if not, you got to figure out what your real day one is. In my opinion, the real day one for a startup is the day it, somebody pays for your product, not the day you, you finish building your product at the end of the day. So I'm kind of in the middle there. I think that we've gotten a bit too lax with the idea that you know you, you got to spend a lot of capital building it. We bootstrapped Orai by going to business plan competitions and sitting up late night with some coffee and and hacking it together ourselves i didn't know how to code properly my cto knew how to code but not i mean we're undergrads at the end of the day we taught ourselves most of the things uh, we know today the fact is that you gotta be you, you gotta hustle it but you gotta hustle it making sure that you you're aiming at the money because that's what makes the makes the business move either money or you're solving such a big pain uh, that you can make money out of it at some point in time so uh, how to put it I, I do have reservations with this idea. Um, and I, but I know that certain things, certain fields need that upfront investment. I'm thinking of the time and the effort we're putting in as an investment, is investment in a vehicle, just like you would in the market and sure. see where it goes after, after that. But, you know, it depends on the industry. If you're in the food industry, uh, you got to make, you know, you got to make sales day one. If you're in the machine learning, AI, and technology industry, you got to build your product before you can say anything to anybody. Uh, we, with Ori, we didn't make money till year like 1.5 years in, and I think we could have made it sooner. And like, we were just dilly dallying about perfection. With Copycat, uh, we're not yet there there yet because it's a deep tech product at the end of the day. But we hope we're really aiming at that. Like our KPIs are just how many clients are interested right now. How many people are interested? Interest breeds money at the end of the day. And then, well, yeah. I, 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 I got to say, Asim, I think all my CFO financial uh, friends, you know, they love what you said about the first day being the day that you actually bring in revenue and sales. And I couldn't agree with you more. I think that you can think of it like two things. If you are changing the world, the community, right? Something like the mRNA technology that is in COVID vaccinations, that took decades. Uh, if you think about some VR applications, if you think of brain um, interface computers, a lot of things that are made for people with disabilities and uh, the space program, there are things that are, you know, projects that are run by government or research departments at universities. That to me makes sense that it has to be funded by public, right? But in business, when you're going to have to 
hire people, you know, pay employees and, and, and build those things, you have to bake in a sales and marketing plan. And you can't just say what you, what you mentioned earlier, which is if I build it, they'll come because really they won't come. You have to have that plan for marketing and sales and it's so important. And then there's a correlation between that and, you know, uh, acquisition of new customers. So I, I have several friends who had startups over the years and they, it died on the vine because they were trying to get it to perfection and they didn't really believe in that MVP. They said, no, forget the MVP. I need to get this application perfect. Well, I have one guy that worked on it for like, he was from HP. He worked at HP for over 10 years. And when he left, he had this idea. And this was around when LinkedIn was starting to grow 2010, 11. Pretty much was another LinkedIn type network for businesses. And he worked on that application for, I don't know, four years before he had, uh, you know, moved out of beta and he had these users and he would do focus groups and really in-depth stuff. I mean, fantastic, but you still don't have a single dollar, right? And he didn't want to fund it either because he didn't want to part with the shares of his baby, right? So he's saying, I don't want to raise money and I got to get it perfect. And I, I would just say, look, you have a really amazing product, but nobody knows about it. That means it doesn't exist. You have no marketing, no sales, you have no customers. And yeah, and you know, that project went south and no one will ever get to know the thousands of hours of this amazing product that he made. So I'm with you, Austin. It's, you got to figure out how to walk and chew gum at the same time, right? Build the, your creation, but also say, how do I make sales? And if you, the founders aren't able to do the sales, then get someone who will, right? Yeah, I 100% agree with that. At the end of the day, you know, sales is really about the customer and being customer oriented really means that you're giving them value and they give you value back for it. So if a startup isn't customer oriented, it's not a startup, it's not going anywhere, frankly. And at the, at the end of the day, I've, I've had to talk to a lot of my friends who also want to start companies, see me doing something at the another guy. And I'm like, hey, 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 hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. <laughs> who do you think is going to use this product again? <laughs> and that sad reality is that we're not taught to think about the customer first. Right. And, you know, that's something which I thankfully learned by actually doing a degree in entrepreneurship, uh, ironically. But I, did, I didn't think about it. My parents who are entrepreneurs didn't think about it. And it's, it's a new mindset, which we all need to buy into. And I, when, I, when I mean buy into, I mean deeply believe it from the bottom of our hearts. Because you can't go running behind money that fast when you're building a product. Right. Yeah. And, and also on top of that, Asim, I read an article this morning about salespeople on LinkedIn of all places. And it was about the fact that, um, you know, the, the new world of sales as a career is changing. And a lot of salespeople are no longer saying, uh, I'm just going to sit here and make phone calls all day, cold calling, right? They, they want to focus on quality, not quantity. And the old guard is saying, no, you need to make X number of phone calls a day and close X number of deals. But there's the new guard saying, well, that's great, but I have tools to automate a lot of those things. 
You may not understand it, but I have the tools or give me the tools and I will focus on quality. So if I have all the data, there's a company called Lead IQ. They, um, they're sort of like a lead generation. You know them? Yeah. So yeah. they pull data from all, all these sources and put it into your Salesforce or any other CRM. So by the time you get on the phone call with your prospect, you have a, just a behemoth of, of data about that person you're talking about. And it saves time. And it's going to help you have a more um, fruitful conversation with your prospect. That includes a lot of things that you typically don't think about in sales, like what you talked about, thinking about the customer's needs, really, empathy, and, and, and how you can really serve them better. So, you know, I'm interested to see what the future holds for sales as a sort of profession around the world, because that shift right now between the baby boomers to millennials taking over, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that push and pull. What do you think about that? Well, in the middle, we did an enterprise strategy for Arai. And I'm deep, like, as an introvert, I really wanted to figure out what sales was. Um, so I really dived into this. And I think there are two hypotheses. There's an ABC always be closing old school, you know, got to pick up the phone, got to call, <laughs> got to hustle, go, got to go door to door. And sometimes even spray and pray hypothesis, which worked because there was an excess demand and a limited supply of many goods out there. But now it's the game has changed from getting to the right people to making the right people trust you enough to buy from you. No matter if you're, even if you're the only one selling this product in the whole wide world, they don't trust you. They're not going to buy from you. It doesn't matter if you're, if it's a rocket you're selling to NASA or, a, you know, a SaaS product you're selling, a SaaS PRM you're selling out of the hundreds that exist out, out there. If, the person in front of you can't trust mm-hmm. you. It's not going to work out. And so um, I recently reread the book called The Trusted Advisor. And I think that that mythology, that idea that you are here to provide value to the person in front of you when you're doing the sale works very well with a startup because often startups are mission driven, right? We are not just about making a lot of money at the end of the day, even though that is one thing that ends up happening to a good number of lucky people. And so that empathy with the customer, that understanding, that trust, especially in our generation where we are bombarded with advertising and media and mass emails and ads, like there, Facebook's experimenting with ads in VR and I'm really afraid of that. At the end of the day, that degrades sure. people's trust in in brands, especially for big, risky things. Small things, I get it. You want to buy, uh, buy a soda, you're going to buy a Coke or a Pepsi. You're not probably not going to buy something else. But big things, things that seem big to people, you know, $100,000 might not seem to uh, something big to a VP in IBM, but it sure as hell is big for me. So if you really want to get people to give you money wherein they really are providing value and they feel that value is being provided to them, they're not just giving you pocket change. You've got to make trust happen. And I think sales needs to be about trust as opposed to, you know, the sleazy car salesman tactic stuff. 
Agreed. No, that that is great advice right there, Asim. And and I think you know when you were just talking about you know the the, the, the always be closing and all of that, I always think of the the movie with Alec Baldwin. It's a movie from like the nineties. Uh, uh, is it Gary Glenn leads or something like that? But um, you know, there's a scene in a movie where he says, you know, put the coffee down. Coffee's for closers only. And you're right. That doesn't work anymore. You have to build relationships. And even the companies that are like the Airbnbs, the Ubers of the world, who really disrupted the, these other industries that said, eh, you're never going to dominate. Right. Or even Tesla for that, for that matter. Right. The car industry was not worried about it five years ago. And if they were, they weren't publicizing it, but now they're all going, okay, we need to follow Tesla. Um, and I think that's going to happen across every single industry as you know, technology continues to be advanced. But um, so I think, you know, sales is changing. And I think when I, when I'm talking to startup founders, they sort of struggle with that because sometimes if they're young, they're saying, let me bring in someone who's senior to do operations potentially. And they have a different sort of, they've had a different journey in life. And they see things a little bit differently and they don't always have their thumb on the pulse. So it, it, it's interesting, the, the dynamics, you know, when you get someone who is 60 and someone who's 25 years old trying to make those decisions because you're so far off um, as to how things work, you know, obviously you don't have that problem because it sounds like your co-founders, you guys are all about the same age, right? Yeah, uh, we are, though we did bring uh, some senior people in at some point of time where we did actually face this problem. So you're on the dot right there. <laughs> they were like, I've seen, I've done this a thousand. It almost feel like it's your parents talking to you, right? Like, listen, I know better. I'm wiser. <laughs> uh, I mean, they, they do mean, they do mean well. And they, of course they, do. they did, yeah. they have succeeded quite a lot. Uh, but times have moved on and they're moving at such a rapid pace that even, even us young ones can't keep up with it. Yeah. You're, you're in technology. You're an old man by now. Cause it's the guys who are 13, <laughs> 14 years old who are TikTok. now really starting, you know, right. TikTok, or like they have the time to tinker and do things that you no longer have time to do because you're, you know, you're a, a founder. You have to yeah. be doing operations and everything else under the sun. Before we wrap things up, Asim, I wanted you to share with some of the, the founders, the first stage entrepreneurs, some just some lessons or lesson, just one lesson that you've learned that you think would be really valuable to pass on to a first time entrepreneur. Or for that matter, if you think that there is something that you could share with a, a veteran entrepreneur who hasn't you know, really bought into adapting to the whole technology thing, you know? So one thing I can tell you about technology today is that you can learn it from anywhere with any kind of access to internet. And that is something which has limited a lot of people for ages, that you had to go into a lab and learn how to use a CNC machine maybe to make that part for being an engineer. Today, the biggest asset you have is your willingness to learn anything as an entrepreneur. You want to make an app, you don't need somebody, to, you don't need to hire a developer for it. Not first off. 
you can start off with just making a drawing on a page, putting it into a software like Figma and making a click-through prototype. You want to take that to the next level. You don't know how to code. You can go online. You can go to Coursera. There are cheap courses. There are free courses where you can apply for financial aid. There are thousands of places where you can learn how to make your dreams and your vision into reality all by yourself. The barrier to enter the digital space has never been lower. But if you want to go beyond that, you really have to make something which is excellent and sticks to a standard. So there, there is a low barrier to entry, but the there is still a barrier to success in technology mm -hmm. because of the low barrier to entry. So one thing I've learned through time is that, A, be hungry about learning. Do not be afraid. Don't think that you can't learn anything. That's actually been scientifically like disproven. You can learn anything at any point in your lifetime as long as you're neurologically capable, like you don't have Alzheimer's or anything like that. You can learn it. Your brain can learn. Your brain is very neuroplastic. And second, make sure that you're verifying the places you're learning the things you learn from. A lot of my colleagues, let's say, wanted to learn machine learning. The first place to hit up is YouTube. YouTube is not the best place to go and find lectures on machine learning because it's not a curated course. And, and I'm not pro school or anything or, or pro institution per se, but there is a merit in finding structured content, which is certified by many people. So say, if you want to learn coding, go to Coursera, don't go to, you know, something random taught by somebody on YouTube, you'll be much better off. Oh, that's amazing advice. Yeah. I'm glad you didn't say that earlier. I asked you this question earlier. Asim. Otherwise, the whole conversation would have been about that because when you were saying that, the thing that's coming to my mind is the 99.9% .9 of content that is, quite frankly, very, very mediocre and the in the world of the internet. And some people don't really take the time to understand, as you mentioned, the person behind the, the content and creating, right? It was said yesterday that 65%, 65% of the COVID misinformation on Facebook is coming from 12 people. So Facebook and their AI, so they have failed, both the humans and the AI have failed to, to keep millions, I mean, millions of posts about inaccurate, I mean, flawed lies i mean flawed scientific data because it's of course they're spinning it like it's science they can always right. find one one doctor who says sure sure but um yeah this this misinformation about covid vaccines 65 percent of it coming from 12 people and of course facebook's not got nothing that they want to say and the bottom line is that they still want the hundreds of millions of people who buy into clickbait this way they can sell more ads so we could talk about that all day I'm glad you didn't say that earlier, but you know, you're right. I, I love that you mentioned that, that if you're trying to learn something, first of all, we all have the capacity to kind of summarize what you said. We all have the capacity of expanding this muscle. And then secondly, make sure you be a, a, a discriminating consumer customer, go online, do your research, take your time to, to, to make sure that you have the right 
channel of information, right? Not just some guy who's in a cave somewhere or, 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 you know, nobody's ever heard of or has no credentials. And to that point, I think you're right. Uh, Universities and certificates, people who have that credibility, it's, it's important that you learn from, from people who have that first and foremost. So I appreciate you touching on that. And I really appreciate you being on the podcast today. I hope that uh, our, our listeners got as much out of this as I did. Tell us how they can find you, Asim. Yeah, so you can find me on my LinkedIn, which will be in the show notes, as well as my Twitter. Uh, feel free to shoot me a message if you're looking for mentoring or if you just need help with a venture. I'm very open to connect and talking, talking to people. I'm here to help out because I was helped out as well. Thank you so much. And we look forward to seeing you back here in the U.S. sooner than later. Yeah, me too. All right. Take care, Asim. Thank you. That's it for the Dadpreneur Podcast with Alex Oliveira. Like what you heard? Leave us a review. If you have questions, email us at listener at dadpreneur.co. You may also visit dadpreneur.co for free resources.